this is crazy, but we know with 99.9% accuracy what the original New Testament document said. So, so no one can tell us, you don't even know what they wrote. No, we for sure know what they wrote. Welcome to the Know Why Podcast. I'm your host, Liberty McCarter, and this is the launch of our series, Know About Jesus. There are over 2 billion Christians of all ages around the globe, making Christianity the largest religion in the world by far. Christianity isn't concentrated on any one continent or in any one nation, making it a truly global religion. So it's worth knowing about the person at the center of Christianity, the one Christians claim to believe in, follow, and worship as God. Jesus. In this series, we'll look at who Jesus is and whether his life and teachings relate to the issues, current events, and questions we experience today. We'll also examine evidence for why we can trust the stories written of Jesus. Are you ready to learn more about this consequential person and the why behind your beliefs about him? Let's get started. Welcome to the Know Why podcast. Let's kick off our Know About Jesus series. But before we jump in, there was a study last year showing that in the U.S., teens and young adults generally have a positive view of Jesus. And 77% of teens say that they are at least somewhat motivated to continue to learn more about Jesus. So that's our goal with this series. If that's you, we want to examine Jesus' life and discover how it relates to the issues and current events and questions that we have today. Uh, But before we explore some of those things, we need to lay the groundwork because before we start talking about what Jesus did and said, we need to know whether we can trust the accounts given of him. So here to discuss that today is Robbie Lashua, who is an apologist at Stand to Reason. Hi, Robbie. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, Liberty. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad that you're um, on the podcast today to talk with us about this. Uh, So Robbie is a former pastor of apologetics at Desert Springs Community Church in Goodyear, Arizona and associate professor at Mission Bible Institute, and he was host of the Christ Culture and Coffee podcast. He earned his bachelor's degree from Arizona Christian University and has a master's of divinity from Phoenix Seminary and a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University. And Robbie has a passion for equipping the church with good reasons to believe in classical Christianity. And most importantly, in Robbie's bio, he has been married to his wonderful wife, Kelly, for over 13 years. And together they are raising four amazing kids to love and serve Jesus. That's so awesome. Thank you again, Robbie, for being here today. I'm so excited to um, hear your insight and ask some of these really tough questions and hear what your answers are. But before we do all that, I actually have a two-part question for you. Can you define apologetics for our listeners and then tell us what led you to get involved in Christian apologetics? Yeah, sure. So um, apologetics, the the word itself really comes from uh, 1 Peter 3.15, which says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and respect. And so the word uh, defense, when Peter says to make a defense, that's the word apologia. And so that's where apologetics comes from. So the idea of, of what apologetics is, is that you're defending the faith. And um, how we do it is, is through ideas and through beliefs and through uh, philosophy and through science. And so apologetics is cool because it's defending the Christian faith through multi-disciplines. 
science, right? Through, through science and archaeology and history and philosophy. So um, it's really a, a robust field of study that involves all fields of studies uh, to defend the Christian faith. So that's, uh, that's what it is. Um, and then uh, how I got into it, I, I grew up in the church, and I love Jesus, and I don't have, um, you know, one of those exciting testimonies about walking away from the Lord and living a deprived life and coming back. I always just stuck with the Lord because um, I believed it to be true. But at a young age, um, I started thinking, you know, if this is legit, it, it has to be true for all people in all places, not just me. Mm. And I should be able to investigate it to see evidence that it's true. Um, and so I'm from Northern Arizona, which was founded by Mormons. Um, most of Northern Arizona, except for a few towns, were founded by Mormons. And so I had tons of Mormon friends growing up that were always ha- trying to tell me that, you know, read the Book of Mormon and you should come to our ward and all of this stuff. And so early on, I had to start thinking through like, okay, what's the difference between what they believe and what I believe? Mm-hmm. Why are they a cult? Why do I think I'm not in a cult? You know? And so I just started doing that at a young age, asking questions. Uh, my, my grandfather was a pastor, so I'd call him when I was reading the Bible and I'd see you know, supposed contradictions um, and say, what's the deal with this? How does this work? Um, but then when I was in college, I, I took an apologetics class. Uh, I think it was my junior year. And I was just blown away that this was like a thing people do, like a formal thing you can like study and you can um, just nerd out on. And so I started listening to podcasts because this was like, I'm old. So, right. This was like in 2005. (laughs) So podcasts were like just a brand new thing. Right. And I had my old iPad or my iPod, right. The first edition with like the dial on it. Oh yeah. And I could, I could find podcasts uh, that, you know, were apologetics in nature. And so I was just loving it. And I plug it in every week so I could, you know, download it to my, my iPod. And uh, that's, that's kind of how it started. You started reading a ton. Um, then, I, like I, you know, I went to school for it, started leading youth groups on apologetics mission trips, teaching it in the church. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got into it. Oh, that's so great. I love your story. And, um, you know, as someone who was also raised in the church, you know, like you, I love the fact that you weren't afraid to ask those questions because, you know, sometimes there are things that are confusing and you don't want to just say, well, you know, I'm believing this because it's what I was always taught to believe and I I better not doubt or, or, you know, get skeptical or ask questions. You know, I really, as a Christian myself, believe that like God wants us to press in and to go deeper and to ask the hard questions. And and I really believe the answers point back to him and, and we'll get into all that. So anyway, that's, that's so great. And that's what we want to do on the podcast as well is we don't want to shy away from hard questions. And I'm just going to mention this now. I normally mention it at the end, but if you ever have a topic or like a question um, that you're wondering about and you wish that somebody would address, like Robbie said, that you wish there was a podcast that talked about that, uh, go to knowwhypodcast.com and you can contact us. The email is info at knowwhypodcast.com and send us your questions and maybe we'll do an episode on it because we want to do that. So let's dive into our questions for today, though. Um, speaking of Jesus, the primary information we have about his life, what he did and said is found in the New Testament of the Bible. But to a critic, they could be like, okay, well, that's just your, you know, religious writings. It's not compelling to anybody outside of your religion. So how do we know that these accounts that we find about Jesus in the Bible are reliable versus just myths or embellishments that were written down long after the fact? Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there's really a two-part question within this. So we want to know if what we have is what they actually wrote or if it got changed over time. And then if we do have what they wrote, did they tell us the truth, right? (laughs) So there's kind of a two-part thing there. So, you know, we would ask, how do we even know if we have what they wrote? Number one, has it been changed over time, right? That's a lot of people say that. I mean, Mormons say that, Muslims say that, atheists say that, that you don't even have what they wrote because it's been copied and translated to so many languages over so much time. Um, but that's, that's not true, actually, at all. Um, and this isn't a faith position. This is just uh, a science position, to be honest. Um, so be- because uh, we have so many copies of the Greek New Testament that we've dug up, right? Archaeology's helped us out a lot with this. Um, I, I think we have somewhere between like 5,100 to 5,300 Greek New Testament manuscripts. So that's, wow. that, you know, that's not early translations. That's not the Coptic language or Syriac or Latin, just Greek New Testament manuscripts. Um, because we have so many of them, we can compare and contrast them with each other and we can figure out what the originals said. Now, it's important to, you know, to say, you know, we don't have the originals. We don't have Paul's actual letter to the Corinthians, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's gone. But we have copies of copies. And what we can do is we can reconstruct the original through these copies. Um, one of the things I like to tell people is kind of like an illustration for this is, you know, imagine you have like an Aunt Sally who has the best chocolate chip cookie recipe in the world, Right. And she has six kids, but she's getting a little older. She's never told anybody this recipe, but she doesn't want it to die with her. So she makes six handwritten copies of this recipe and gives them to her kids. And then each of her six kids makes a handwritten copy for each of their kids. But then Aunt Sally dies. And then, um, unfortunately, her house burns down, right? So the original recipe is gone. Can we ever know what the original recipe said? Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, what you would do is you'd go and get the six copies she made and then the copies of the copies that her kids made, and you could just compare and contrast them with each other to deduce what the original said. And even if there's problems with some of those copies, you know, let's say on the first line of it, you know, eggs is smudged out because somebody spilled some milk, you know, on the recipe. Mm -hmm. So, oh man, you're supposed to crack three somethings. How could you figure out what they're supposed to be? Well, you look at the other copies and they all say eggs there. And you go, okay, this is supposed to be eggs. But then there's a burn hole in one, right? And, mm-hmm. and the word baking soda is missing. But you can see from the others what's there. So that, that's what we do with the Greek New Testament manuscripts is we gather them, we compare and contrast them with one another, and we know, uh, this is crazy, but we know with 99.9% accuracy what the original New Testament documents said. So so no one can tell us, you don't even know what they wrote. No, we for sure know what they wrote, uh, but that doesn't mean that what they wrote is true, right? So that's kind of where we get into the second step. Yeah. So that's just like so cool to know that there are that many uh, manuscripts. And I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but isn't that like a pretty significant or impressive number in regards to ancient literature in terms of how many manuscripts there are? Oh yeah. Like, like it's, it's embarrassing when you compare it with other ancient manuscripts. I think, I think the second um, biggest <clears throat> or the, the, the second um, writing that we have the most manuscripts for is Homer's Iliad. 
but it's it's something like a little under a thousand manuscripts, I think, is where the current count is at. Wow. Um, so we, we have to update these numbers often, right? Because, um, when Josh McDowell wrote this in evidence that demands a verdict, you know, 30 years ago or whatever, um, people have been saying that information for the last 30 years. And it's like, well, we keep finding more manuscripts of all this stuff, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I think the current numbers like at about a thousand for Homer's Iliad, which is, is super small compared to the the new Testament manuscripts, not to mention um, I think there's a 400-year time gap between when uh, Homer wrote the Iliad and the first manuscript we have of it. The mm. so 400-year time gap, whereas when you look at the New Testament writings, there's, there's uh, about a, some people say 25 to 30-year time gap wow. from when they wrote it to what we can hold in our hands today. So we have earlier stuff that's closer in time and way more uh, manuscripts than any other ancient uh, ancient document. That is so cool. And so we know that when we read the New Testament today, it's going to be accurate um, compared to what was originally written down. But the part two of your question, how can we trust that it was true, what they wrote down in the first place? Yeah. And so to, to, to think through, is that, are they telling me the truth? we have to go and look at internal evidence, right? So now we have established, we have what they wrote. Is it legitimate? And uh, what you want to do is you want to uh, read the scriptures. Um, now people will say, oh, there's all these contradictions and, and this and that. And I've never found a legitimate Bible contradiction. You know, um, there, there's like a, a really famous um, agnostic New Testament scholar named Bart Ehrman. And um, he wrote in his book, Jesus Interrupted, you know, wh- how many women were at the tomb? Well, it depends which gospel you read. And then he goes on this rant and he says in John 20, it says Mary alone. And then Matthew 28 says Mary and another Mary. And then Mark 16 says Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome. Um, and then in uh, Luke, it talks about other women and Mary, the mother of James. So he's claiming, see, this is so contradictory. They don't, none of them agree. Um, but if you just read more than one verse, <laughs> it answers these types of questions. So just for, for instance, you know, he says, was it Mary alone, like in John 20, verse 1? And if you read um, uh, John 20, 1 and 2, it answers the question. Because uh, it says, now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So he's claiming that only Mary went because John only mentions Mary, which that's, that's terrible, right? Like if, if I came home, you know, from, uh, from an elders meeting and my wife's like, Hey, who was at the elders meeting? I said, well, Mark was there and you know, Steve was there. Would she just slap me and say, I know Nick was there too. You liar. <laughs> I hope not. Right. right. <laughs> like, well, just cause I don't exhaustively mention everyone doesn't mean I'm lying or contradicting myself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get into when you get into John one or John twenty verse two, listen, listen to what it says after this. After Mary sees that the tomb that the the stone had been rolled away, it says, "Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him.' Mm. Okay, who's the we? Right." The other women. I, I said in Greek. Yeah, I said in Greek. I looked it up in the Greek. It's the plural. It's we. It's the other women. And it's like, man, Bart Ehrman, if you would have just read an extra verse, you would have seen that this mm-hmm. is not a good argument at all, man. 
Um, so when people say, oh, there's all these contradictions, I just give them my Bible and I say, hey, can you show me one? Because legitimately, if there is one, I'd like to know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually people just go, well, I just heard it on YouTube or something, you know. So um, when we look internally, we don't find contradictions. But what we do find is embarrassing details. And so the historians of all different kinds of ancient literature, they believe that if you find embarrassing details in the text about the people who are writing the text, they're probably telling you the truth. Mm. Uh, because if you're making it up, you would make yourself look good, right? Yeah. And so think about it. And, and this is so common to us as, as Bible readers, but these are really ridiculous things to write if you're trying to start a cult and get people to follow you, right? So Peter, Peter's called Satan. Right, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Yeah. Okay, so imagine Peter and his buddies are making up this this religion, and he says, "You know what would be great is if we have the Lord call me Satan, and then we're trying to get everyone to believe what I say." It yeah. doesn't even make sense, right? Like, mm-hmm. how crazy is that? You have Peter denying Jesus three times after saying he would die with him. You have the disciples abandoning Jesus at his arrest. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have Peter having such bad aim that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he attacks a guy and all he can do is cut off his ear, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's like, hey, you know what? Tell people I'm not good with a sword. I mean, it's just so embarrassing. Um, But one of the main ones is, you know, you have women at the tomb of Jesus. And this is ultra embarrassing for that time period because women weren't even viable to, um, to, to testify in court. You had to have three women testify against a known criminal for the women's testimony to hold up. Um, so women's testimony meant nothing back then, but all four gospels unanimously say women were the first witnesses to the most important historical event in history. Um, mm-hmm. If you were trying to start a cult, this would be the, the dumbest way to do it uh, because nobody would believe you, right? Like it's, it's silliness uh, in that culture. And so um, the embarrassing details within the New Testament make us think, man, it seems like these guys were going out of their way to tell the truth, even when it made them look bad. So maybe they were telling the truth in the other details, right? So that's, that's one kind of internal evidence that leads us to think they're trustworthy. Hmm. Wow, fascinating. And I love, um, you know, learning more about the cultural context because there's so much like illumination there. Just for instance, you know, the fact that, women weren't even reliable witnesses in court. They weren't considered that. So that one shows you a lot about Christianity and how radical it was, Um, you know, how radical Jesus ministry was at the time. And then, yeah, the fact that if they were trying to make something up to get people to join, then why would they use women as their, their main witnesses? So that's just Mm -hmm. so fascinating stuff that I think a lot of people don't realize or haven't thought through before. So, um, and and if you treat it like, because this is the thing, like you have to treat it like all ancient documents. So, I mean, people will do the same thing with, you know, um, um, Tacitus' writings about Rome and Josephus' writings about the Jews. So this is a common thing you look for when there's embarrassing details. It kind of screams authenticity because there's no reason somebody would make up embarrassing details. Be sure to tune in next week to part two of our interview with Robbie Lashua. 